Hello and welcome to the words we use. Have you ever struggled with finding the right words to give meaning, depth, and clarity to your message? We have, and that's exactly what we're going to examine. Come along with us as we expand our communication knowledge. TWWU team, please introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Pat. Hi, I'm Sue. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Carissa. Hi, I'm Bill. Hi, I'm Lisa. Hi, I'm Gary. And, and we, we are the Word We Use. Welcome to the Words We Use. Today we will be discussing Crucial Conversations. It is a book written by Carrie Patterson, Joseph Grinney, Ron McMillan, and Al Schweitzler. And it is regarding the tools we need when there's a crucial conversation in our life. Those high stake conversations which have a big impact on our lives. That is what we will be discussing today. Whenever you have a crucial conversation, you have varying opinions. Maybe you're trying to decide which way your company should grow. And there are varying opinions as maybe you wanna move the company, maybe you don't. Stakes are high because you're interrupting people's lives. You're making big decisions about people's lives. When anything is affecting people's lives, emotions are running strong either for or against. And you're having an impact on the quality of their life. If you're making people move, you're uprooting them from the life they know. You're uprooting not only the employee, but their family, their children. You have to worry about the school. What about the spouse having and their job? So that is the crucial conversation. And whenever you have these conversations, you want to have a pool of information that is shared by everybody. And everybody contributes to that pool of information. And the more people are contributing, the better your decisions because you have more options. But sometimes people leave out critical information. They want to look like the hero or they want to not have the blame put on them. So they tell stories, and in the book, they're called clever stories, stories which justify their behavior. It stacks the deck in their favor so that they look better. And we all tend to do this a little bit throughout our lives. We want to look good. We don't want to be judged. And so those are the things that impact our lives. And basically, there's three types of clever stories. There's the victim story, which is, that's not my fault. There's the villain story, which is, it's all your fault. And then there's the helpless story. There was nothing I could do. Yes, we've all had those stories told to us. But is there a better way? We're going to discuss today, is there a better way to tell our stories so that when we get to these crucial moments that are important in our lives, that we can make better decisions? I think crucial conversations are important to have. And they're not easy conversations and sometimes they're hard. And a lot of times we have those in professional settings. Sometimes we have them in personal settings. Nonetheless, they are conversations that need to be had. And I think oftentimes when I think back on who taught me how to have a crucial conversation, I don't know that anybody really did. And we can think back perhaps to our childhood. How did our elders, how did our peers have conversations? And oftentimes, there were thoughtful conversations where they were sat down at the kitchen table and there was very serious words being used. And other times there was just conversations that seemed very explosive and it was my way or the highway. And you're like, well, that doesn't seem like a 
in between ground. So I think when we become adults, I think we're still learning how to have those crucial conversations and what tools can we use to have more effective conversations because I think there are ways that you can get your message across without being volatile or being a hothead, but then also you don't want to be on the other extreme where you're just being very passive and submissive and then you walk out of that meeting or that conversation and your message really wasn't heard. So I think it's very important to learn what's the most effective way to navigate and to get my message across, even though it's difficult and it's sticky and they might not want to hear it. I think there's a tactful, constructive way to do that. And I think this book lays out a very good roadmap for tools that we can use to do that. And how do we engage in those conversations when we walk in and we know, you know, I'm going to have to talk about the elephant today and, and no one's going to want to hear about it, but I've got to talk about it. And so how do we prepare ourselves and how do we set ourselves up for success without stepping on other people's toes or offending them or having them become irate because, you know, the audacity of you to carry on the elephant. Well, if I don't carry it in, who's going to carry it in? And we need to talk about it. I think this book gives a lot of groundwork for that. And I don't know if anyone else has had to navigate those conversations where you're just thinking, oh, I just wish I didn't have to talk about this. Or if I go in, the ground's going to swallow me up. I hope it does if it doesn't go well. But I think it's good to to get that out in the open and to discuss that. And we can do some planning ahead of time. You know, what can I do to prepare? What words can I use, you know, to make this conversation impactful? And I think the more preparation we can do, I think that, for, at least for me, that makes it easier when I'm going into conversations that I know are challenging and difficult. If I did some homework and did some prep work, then I don't feel like I'm just being thrown into the lion's den trying to fend for myself, you know, a la minute. I don't think I was ever trained either how to do, how to face those important conversations. And they say you either go to violence or silence. And I always tended to go to silence because I'd get tongue-tied and I wouldn't know how to defend myself. But what I've learned is when you're silent, you're also invisible. So I didn't get what I needed out of those conversations because I didn't speak up. And I've also had to deal with people who were what they call violent. And those are the people who will push their agenda on you or they'll threaten you or call you names the people who tend to get their way. It's hard to speak up when those people are talking because they're so adamant and they're so passionate. So it's hard to deal with their emotions and come up with your own ideas, especially if you're, a lot of times these crucial conversations aren't planned, they come up at unexpected moments and then it makes it especially hard. I agree with that. That's when I go silent is when it's an unexpected moment and I'm just not sure how to proceed. And the book also indicates that when you are caught off guard by a crucial conversation, your brain is on, I don't know what it's on, I can't remember what the phrase was, but it, but it makes your brain not, you're not able to work. Um, you're not able to say what you're supposed to say or what you want to say because your brain has gone to another location and then is not processing the information right. Um, they also talked about practice makes perfect, but only if you practice the perfect way to have a crucial conversation. Because you can practice and practice, but if it's not the perfect or the uh, appropriate way to deal with a crucial conversation, you're not practicing. Your practicing isn't going to get you anywhere. When I was coaching, we had a phrase, practice makes permanent. Only perfect practice makes perfect thought about that when I was reading this. Uh, the crucial conversation sort of depends on the other person. 
You can try this technique, but boy, I've known quite a few people. If they seem at all responsible for whatever problem you're talking about, they would turn the blame on someone else. So unless a person on the receiving end knows these techniques and what you're trying to accomplish, I'm not sure it would work. I think I'm doing a pretty good job of doing this without realizing this is what I do because I've had to deal with so many nasty people. Mm -hmm. I get engineers walking up to me as a programmer and telling me how I was supposed to do my job. And I'd have to just sit there and nod my head and go along with whatever they were saying and tell them it's worth considering. I'll have to look into it. But I would ne wouldn't give them an automatic yes, and I wouldn't give them an automatic no. I just realized that as long as I didn't push back, it took the wind out of their sails, sort of killing them with kindness. That's mm -hmm. similar to what they're suggesting here with this turning villains into humans. They've got their results that they've got to produce, and if they can at least push them off on somebody else like me, they don't have to take the blame if it doesn't get done. At least you can have your input into the story. I remember I was with the Toastmaster Club and they had voted to let this gentleman go to the banquet at the convention because he had won the contest, so he was a competitor. When he turned in his invoice, instead of that just one banquet, he charged our club for the whole convention which would mean the banquet dinner, the breakfast the next day, the lunch the next day, and the dinner the next day. I didn't win this argument, but I knew he was cheating us, and he kept coming at me. And it was like, hey, I've put on, I was a convention chair one year, so I know how the pricing structure is done. So he just kept coming at me. He said, well, maybe it's, you know, the, you have the people that only watch. And I said, no, those people are charged $15. The, the banquet is 35 And he kept coming back at me. And what I had to do in my mind was make myself into a wall. So he would bounce off of me and bounce off of me. That's the only way I could deal with this, this person because I was not going to change what I was saying because I knew he was lying and I would not support his lie. The club went ahead and paid the, for the whole convention, even though that's not what they had voted for. That's not what they had agreed to. But at least I knew that I had put the information into the shared pool so that they knew they were being ripped off, even though they didn't want to stand up to them and say, you know, give us our money back. Another part of the crucial conversation is how you approach the person and, and whether it's planned or unplanned. And then the person, as Gary was saying, would need to be open to having that type of discussion, whether they were had the crucial um, conversation training or read the book or not. First of all, you need to show that you care, that it's not just your needs that need to be met, that both of your needs probably need to be met, especially in a relationship. And that you want that person to be able to trust and you wanna be able to trust that person while you're having this conversation. So it probably takes a lot of practice to build up to something that is close to a crucial conversation, especially at home when some things can be heated because something happens at the last minute. But I do like that idea that even though the person you're talking to is not aware of crucial conversations, that you can attempt to guide them into a crucial conversation by saying, this is, it's not just for me. I want us to be able to work through something. So that was helpful as I was reading it. True, we can only control ourselves and our own actions. I liked how they had that, how to refocus your brain. 
because mm -hmm. when somebody else is heated, I tend to get heated too. So it's very useful to have those questions of what do I really want for myself? What do I really want for others? And what do I really want for the relationship? Because so many times we get off track and we lose focus or we lose what the goal is and we start fighting about other things and then the whole conversation just goes down the tubes. I just finished up, um, it was called a self-improvement webinar over the past couple of weeks. It was a free webinar that someone had connected me with and they were talking a lot about conversations and even conversations that we have with ourselves. And there was a principle they were explaining about, you have the experience and then you have your response to the experience. And what happens in between is what you attach to it. So it's just an experience, but if you attach something to it and give it emotional value, then it turns into something completely different. And we have that internal power, or so they proposed, to decide whether or not we're gonna attach emotional energy to it. And if we don't, we just take it as, this was just a life experience. And one example they used is if you're driving, and you get a flat tire, you wouldn't go ahead and slash the other three just because you had one. So we can decide how we're gonna take that. And I think oftentimes in conversations too, we can direct whether or not we're going to take that message as just someone else's observation or if we're gonna internalize it and say, well, you know, you called me such and such, that doesn't mean that you have to take that and internalize it. We can decide whether or not we're gonna relinquish that power to someone else or if we're just going to take that as fact or fiction. So. We can decide if we're going to invest a lot of energy into it or if we're just going to say, you know what, I'm not going to value this. I'm not going to put emotional attachments to this. This is what happened. This is how I'm going to respond and I'll learn from it and move forward. That kind of clears the way of clogging the arteries with all that emotional junk that we put in our trunk when people are giving us messages and we just get all frustrated about it. We have to step back and say, okay, who attached that emotional space to it? And another quote that they said was, be careful of the conversations you're having with yourself because the left ear and the right ear is listening. I thought that was kind of interesting. Even when you have conversations with other people, you know, people are listening. So how would you want them to speak to you and how are you speaking to them? It's interesting that in the book, they had something similar where they said that the space between the situation, either what you heard or, or the action that happened and your emotions is the story. And they had the story of the lady who was looking at the bills and noticed that there was a bill from a motel that was very, very, what, honey? Uh, I'll, I'll give you some chocolate later, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Sounds like a crucial conversation. <laughs> there was a crucial conversation, yes. There's a story between the action and the motion. And this lady had seen a bill from the hotel that was nearby. And she got so upset with her husband. And the story in her head was, he was having an affair. How could you do this with me, to me? And so, of course, when he walks into this storm of emotion, he doesn't even know what is going on, that she had seen this bill. When they finally called the motel and they discovered that they had eaten at a Chinese restaurant but this man owned two businesses. That was actually for their dinner that they had gone out and celebrated. It, it wasn't the husband going off to a hotel. She had this whole story and we do this all the time. I did this to my daughter-in-law just a couple days ago on my writing desk. She likes to use it at night. And I woke up in the morning and there was 
an empty container and there was dirty dishes and I was just, I was just furious. And so I jumped on her because, it, you know, I had this whole, well, that's not respectful. And that's why would, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not respectful. Well, I should have been jumping all over Sydney. is the one that left all that stuff on my desk and but i had come up with this whole story about my daughter-in-law it wasn't your fault it was sydney's fault that you jumped on your daughter-in-law that's right (laughs) (laughs) what could i do it's not my fault yes well those are called those are called clever stories so then how do you get how do you get beyond that well, they say you have to tell the whole story and just stay with the facts. The fact was there was dirty dishes and garbage on my desk and I hadn't seen who had put it there and I was angry about it. Those were the facts. I didn't know the complete story. So I, how you turn it into a useful story is adding in all the information because we tend to leave out any information that will make us look bad. So we need to add that in to it. So does it say how to go about finding the the whole story? I mean, you have to ask people or? I, I turned her into a villain. So what I should have maybe thought about is, would she, would a decent, rational person do trash somebody's, well, somebody did. But <laughs> <laughs> is it typical of her to do that? Right, is it typical of her to do that? No, but I have to turn her back into a human being instead of the villain. I have to, take out my emotions and say, in a normal situation, would she do this? So that's what we need to do. We need to turn the villains back into humans. Would a decent, rational human being do this at this time? And a lot of times it's no. So if it's no, there must be more information that we're missing. And so talking to that person, and if she didn't know how the dishes got there, but who else in the house might have? Say that again? I said, but she did bring them up and put the dishes in the sink. And oh, that was nice. Even though she wasn't the one responsible, but she, she did go out of her way to help me clean up mm-hmm. the area. But I felt embarrassed after that because I jumped on her. Mm-hmm. She was innocent. Did you uh, just keep that to yourself or did you have to what, you swallow your pride and apologize and all that other stuff? I, I swallowed my pride and apologized. I've gotten to the age where I know that a lot of times I do stupid things. I just own up to it because I'm going to probably do it again. I I read this book about once about how you have like bank accounts, emotional bank accounts. What I had done was I had taken out of the emotional bank account between me and my daughter-in-law. The apology will put back in to that account. So mm-hmm. if you drain that dry, that's when you can't go to the other person anymore and actually have a relationship. But if you keep that account full, I was able to go back, apologize. She, she accepted my apologies, my apology. You know, we did end up on a good footing because mm-hmm. we do have a good relationship. And I think we have a good relationship because I do apologize when I do stupid things. And we all should. However, that doesn't necessarily happen. Well, it's not, it's embarrassing to apologize. It's embarrassing to own up to doing some of the things that I do. I always think I'm right in the moment. And then when I find out I'm wrong, going back is not pleasant. But I found it's more unpleasant not to repair the relationship. Now, in this chapter six of Crucial Conversations, 
it talks about retracing your path. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you retrace your path or your story? Okay, so when you retrace your path, the first thing you need to do is notice your behavior. Mm -hmm. So I noticed my behavior, it wasn't the silent, it was a bit of the violent. So you have to own up to that. Okay, so notice my behavior. I had to get in touch with my feelings and I was feeling disrespected. That, that was the feeling I was feeling. And then I had to look over the story I was telling. What emotions was this story creating? So I had to look back over the story of you know, her in my mind sitting there and just leaving dirty dishes and garbage on my desk, which didn't happen. And so the anger and the frustration, and when I revisit and analyze the story and add the crucial information in there that it wasn't her, the emotions released. So I was able to do that and get it. And the fourth step is to get back to the facts. And the mm -hmm. facts were that I got upset over a situation that did not happen that she, she, she did not do that. She did not sit there and just leave garbage on my desk. Okay. So those are so the four steps, yeah. The four steps, so noticing your behavior, getting in touch with your feelings, analyzing the story that you did create, and going back to the facts. So then you can um, focus on behavior to separate the story from the fact. I think all the crucial conversations, it's all about getting back to the facts. Everything else is just fantasy. Until we can get back to the facts, it's just opinion or it's just your perspective or whatever. It doesn't help the whole group if you're just off on a tangent someplace without the facts. Wait a minute, I've been in this situation. Somebody was supposed to do something and you knew they were supposed to do it and they didn't do it. I've always said a lot of problems are created that way where person A thinks person B is supposed to do something and person B should know enough to do that. And sometimes you're right. Well, don't you have the right to be upset about that? Should you have to ask again? And then how do you do that? How do you go up and remind them politely without putting them on the defensive? They get that, oh, well, I just didn't do it or I forgot. It keeps happening over and over again. At a certain point, you feel justified making them the villain. They didn't do what they promised to do. And how do you work around that? Sometimes you just have to change your own actions and you know that the other person isn't going to change their actions. I am tired of going into the bathroom and sitting down and noticing there's pee on the seat. Now, most of the guys, most of the people in my family are male. One is three, one is nine, one is 30s, one's 60s. And it was like, well, I can't train all these guys, but what can I do? Well, the toilet, it, it has an inch. And so what I figured out is, okay, how do I alleviate the problem? I'm done with using the toilet. I put up the seat. That means the next guy who comes in is not going to pee on the toilet seat. And I don't have to worry about it the next time. So sometimes you just have to change your own actions because the other person is not going to change theirs. Sometimes that will alleviate the situation, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, you know, if you're depending on this person to do something, if they're, if they're not doing it, I don't know what you can, you can't force them. You can't go do it for them. You can't crawl into their body and move their hands and make them do something. So then you'd be bringing up a crucial conversation, and you wouldn't want that person to, that you're 
angry with you. You want them to know that you're not comfortable with the situation. Yeah, you've sort of taken yeah. the silence route. Yet you want them to, you want to, to talk about it with them and find out what, you know, is it something they don't like doing? Is it, uh, they're also, they're human and they make mistakes and some people are better at forgetting things than other people. But it, but it is a crucial, crucial conversation and you need to get the facts and do all those other, the noticing your behavior, getting in touch with your feelings, analyze your story and get back to facts. But I don't know how you would make, you can have that conversation with that person, but it wouldn't necessarily change and help that person or people to remember to do what they were supposed to do. So you can say, well, I've had the conversation, now what can I do? And I don't know that this book goes into that part, but it could. Uh, just a thought, you could probably hang out around the bathroom and just go in there and check after each person's been in there, but I don't know if you have that much time. You know, it just... <laughs> I had a work experience once years ago with a company and I was in middle management at the time and the company that I worked for we had a uniform requirement and there were three things that you had to have in your uniform attire before you came to your workstation and one of my employees insisted on showing up at the workstation and was minus three of those uniform criteria and she did this every single day I would have to remind her now so and so you can't be in your workstation until you have these three items Oh, yes, I know. I left them in my employee locker. Um, I'll go get them. Ten minutes would pass. A half hour would pass. She still wouldn't be in uniform. And this went on for weeks and weeks. And she was becoming frustrated because she felt I was treating her like a child. And finally, I just said, well, we sat down and had to have a crucial conversation. And I just laid out the parameters. And I said, well, when you were hired, you knew that these were the uniform requirements. And these are the requirements that you have to meet. And when you come tomorrow, when you show up to your workstation and you have all of these uniform requirements in place and on your person, then you can walk to the time clock and clock in. But until then, you will not be allowed to clock in. So it wasn't until it kind of hit her dollars and cents and hit her bank account, then every single day, boy, she came into work and she had all of her uniform pieces in place. But it was a difficult conversation because you you tell people what they need to do, but they don't always respond. And so then how do you go back and have that conversation in a productive way and kind of give them the onus that, okay, you chose to make this action, so this is gonna be your result. Otherwise that conversation just goes on and you can have the silent treatment, you can argue back and forth, and it doesn't seem to be very productive, but it's, it's an interesting position to navigate. It sounded like that was a real appropriate consequence for her, and she was able to follow through. I've been trying to figure out how to apply these steps to a former situation I was in with my manager. He would throw us employees under the bus every chance he got. No matter what our department did, it wasn't his fault, it was our fault because we didn't do something right. And other managers noticed this and a few of us were good friends with those managers and they'd report back to us what our manager had done to us in a meeting. Now, how are you supposed to just let that go? There's really nothing you can do about it except going to the boss's boss and talking to him about it and hoping something good comes of it. But if you know if this guy and this particular manager ever found out that you were going to his manager about him, there'd be heck to pay eventually. Mm -hmm. And how to have a 
crucial conversation and get him to understand that there's something wrong with what he's doing. It doesn't matter what it was. It would be very risky. Would this technique really work in a situation where you have a, a manager who always thinks he's right? Your manager, it sounds like he was hurting himself because none of the people who reported to him trust him. Yeah, but he didn't think so. The reality is that nobody under him trusted him, which meant that they started to protect themselves and weren't giving him all the information he probably needed because they knew that he repeatedly would throw them under the bus. So he was actually shooting himself in the foot, even though he didn't know it. Yeah, if, if people aren't willing to learn or they aren't willing to, to have an open mind, I don't think there is anything you can do. You have to be able, you have, I think the crucial conversations are for people who want to come together and fix a certain situation. But if somebody is not interested in helping the procedure or helping the change, there's nothing you can do to about it. You just have to let them go on their own way. Come to think of it, I think this book, Crucial Conversations, has a whole chapter, maybe two, devoted to difficult people. Maybe there's a different technique. And the other thing to remember is not all techniques will work on all people. You know, some techniques might work really well with some people and not others. So, but if you have the tool, at least you can use it. If you, if you know about how to, to use it in a conversation, it usually, at least you can use it and try. In that work situation, Gary, did you ever feel like you were coming in kind of pre-scripted? Like maybe each of your cohorts had ideas and things they wanted to offer, but you go in and you think, well, he's not going to listen anyway. He's just going to, you know divert the conversation. So why should I even offer any information? Did you ever feel like that in the midst of those gatherings at work? Yes. You have to think it through. You have to be ready to talk about it in a way that will make him receptive. And I found one of the ways that worked was to ask questions. Make it look like he's figuring out the answer. You're just guiding him in that direction and then he'll come up with the solution. Even though he may not realize he's the one that caused that situation, at least if he can come up with a solution, you're not making him look bad. For example, I used to write processes to the, uh, the software that I would create. The process would come past me and I'd sign off on it and then it'd go to him. I figured out that he had to find something to make it look like he actually did something. So what I would do is I would deliberately misspell a word, a very obvious word. And as long as he found it, that's, that made him happy. Otherwise, he would look for T's that weren't crossed, periods that were missing, excessive commas, really ridiculous things just to reject it, just to say he found something that I made a mistake on. I don't know why he did that, and I wasn't going to confront him on it. I found if I just gave him something to find, he was happy. That was very clever, Gary. You, you've obviously dealt with a lot of difficult people, and you've come up with some great strategies. Especially that guy in the mirror. <laughs> I liked how the book was talking about pushing people's big red buttons, and it mentioned something about, do people push our buttons, or do we push them ourselves? And I don't know what your feedback is, but sometimes I feel like people can push your buttons, but then are we deciding to give away that energy or do we just decide to have a quick response so they can kind of goad us on and, and you know get our egg but 
if we respond to it, does that mean that we're pushing it? Or do people just thrive out of getting that energy boost from doing what they know is going to drive you absolutely crazy? <laughs> when I started growing up was when I learned how to control my buttons when people were trying to push them. Sometimes it was just sticking up for myself. I remember one time, this one guy used to always call me stupid. And one day I, I just stood up to him and said, no, I'm not stupid. Don't call me that again. Yeah, that was just me standing up for myself, but it got him to realize that I wasn't going to let him push that button anymore. We all push each other's buttons to a certain extent, but it was me deciding how I was going to react and realize that it was more about him and what he was going through than what about me and my intelligence. And I think a lot of times we forget that when people are doing these things, a lot of times it's not about us at all. Even though we're the kind of the person in the path and get mowed over, it's about them and their insecurities or whatever. I was always taught to never take anything at face value, question everything, including this book. And at first, I, when I was reading through this, I'm finding holes, like I've been discussing, all over the mm -hmm. place. But when I give it a a second thought and realize that I've been employing a lot of these techniques without realizing somebody else had written them down. I can say in certain situations, it definitely works. You can't assume that somebody should just know what to do. You got to make sure that both on the same page, they know, first of all, they know that it's something they're supposed to do and that you're expecting them to do it. You blindside them while you're asking for a lot of problems because mm -hmm. they're going to go on the defensive and there's no way of repairing that. You're just going to have to walk away from it, come back later and try it again, but do it a nice way. Just ask if you can talk about it. It's tough to do because it goes against most of what I've learned. Coaches don't talk to you about what you're supposed to do. You're told what to do. And if you don't do it, guess where you end up? Managers do the same thing. At least when I was growing up, my dad was coming out of a generation where kids were supposed to be seen, not heard. They were told what to do. Rarely did I see any parents discussing things with their children. They were told to go clean up their room, told to go do their homework. It wasn't explained why that was a good idea. We're taking some of this stuff, again, without realizing it, and applying it to Haley. It's not good <laughs> enough to just tell her to do her homework because it's something she has to do. We're trying to explain to her, what do you want to be when you grow up? How do you expect to get there? And once she's figured out how much work it takes to get to college, She's decided maybe the trades are the better route. <laughs> One thing I, I learned with my son and grandson is that I grew up with that too. You know, you just did it because your parents said. But what I learned is if I explained the rationale behind what I was asking them to do, a lot of times, even that when they were very young, they understood. So if they understand why you're asking for something, they were, at least my, my son and grandson, they were a lot more willing to do what I asked them to do. And I think that helped with our understanding of the world also. And, and it all, in the long run, it made them more independent because they, from a young age, were making decisions for themselves instead of me having to tell them, do this, do that, do this, do that all the time. I think that's important. I think the more that we can engage people in the process of the conversation, rather than just coming in and saying, I've arrived, these are the rules, these are the regulations, you know, kind of the law and order, this is what we're going to do. But if you can engage them and make them a part of the process, you know, this is how you're going to benefit. This is what you can contribute. You know, this is a team effort. You can bring them into the conversation. And again, as Gary mentioned, 
giving them as much information as possible. I tend to leave bits and bobs out of stories, and I think people are mind readers, and people will go back and say, well, you didn't tell me step four or eight. I didn't know that. And I'm like, oh, well, I just assumed that when I started at one, you would just know that I was going one through 10, and I didn't make that specifically clear. So I think, you know, making sure people have all the information and then making the conversation inclusive, making them a part of it, and giving each person maybe a part of that conversation that they can address or speak about. So it doesn't come like it's just all or none. It's my way or not doing it, you know, your way, but making it inclusive. I find, especially since I'm in a bilingual family and my Chinese is really horrible, I lose a lot of the story. And so my family thinks I know all this stuff that I don't. They might be going camping. They think I know. I don't know until they're going out the door. So part of it is my hearing, but a lot of it, as I just, they, they forget to tell me things. And then it's like, well, we told you that. It's like, no, you didn't, or I wouldn't know. So I don't know. <laughs> but it does get really frustrating when you don't have all the information, but somebody expects you to act as if you do. Well, I was kind of curious about how these authors, these, I think it's four men, got together to write this book. And I really could not find that specific information. I think two of them might have worked on a book previously and found the other two guys, whatever. But I know that they all did research in changing behavior. Most of it was in the workplace. Somebody did research on a hundred felons who were repeated felons and the felons were given the option of living in a home or, well, it was in an old home. It must have had a lot of room to have a hundred people living there. However, they were responsible then for themselves and to get a job to make things work out there. They decided that they would do a moving service and they had to gain the trust, however, of the community because it was kind of humorous the way it was put is that, um, yes, we know how to move valuables. Well, yes, they did move many valuables in their time before they moved into this house. So that was interesting that they also look at behavior in people that didn't work along with behavior where they were able to make changes. Yeah, and they held each other accountable. They did. I think Gary brought up an important piece of holding people accountable. When we don't hold ourselves accountable and others don't hold us accountable, things just slide away. I, I notice that in my own life, that I tend to take on too many things and then I have to be reminded of stuff that, that I should have gotten done. Has anybody listened to these YouTube videos that they have distributed? Not yet. The ones from the book? Yeah, Granny does a real good job. I like listening to his. And he I was telling the same story you were talking about, Sue. Sorry. Oh, good. I was going to say, I haven't, I tried to get on and I obviously didn't get the right buttons. So I got onto the site, but I didn't find any of the stories. So, but you listen to some of those stories. That's good because that is a nice part of this book. And that was something that a couple of the guys or all four of them decided to do also. It's, it's called virtual, what is it called, Gary? Virtual smarts. Yes. That sounds like they've got a whole business on this. Yes, and many more books that they've written also. But if it's working and if it's helping people at work or in relationship. Yes, I think it's been very empowering to remind ourselves that we can all think back on those conversations we didn't want to have. But then when we pushed ourselves and prepared ourselves to have them and we came out on the other side 
And at least for me, it was just such a weight that was relieved because if I knew if I didn't have that conversation, I was just going to stew about it and stew about it. And whether it went well or not, at least giving ourselves the permission to navigate it as best we could, even though it was difficult, we came out on the other side, I think, with learning tools to have better conversations going forward. Yeah, you run into a lot of those when you have your kids living with you. I'm finding the same thing, you know. <laughs> yep. And maybe I would have been the same way too, but they, they have a total different perspective than I do. And so it, it always kind of amazes me. I say one thing and they hear something totally different. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. <laughs> I think it's, it's just important to realize that conversations are a part of life. And not all of them are going to be soft and easy conversations. And some of the conversations we need to have are going to be problematic and sticky and difficult. But if we want to move ourselves and move our team, whether that's family or coworkers, to a higher level, a more educated place, we have to navigate through that. And the way we do that is by having these conversations and resourcing all the tips and tricks and tools that we can, whether it's through the book or conversations on podcasts. Because in the end, it makes us better communicators. And information is a good thing. And I think fear is a question without an answer. So the more information we can get to be better communicators, that makes the greater good for the whole of becoming you know, closer in our conversation pieces and having less fragmentation. Well Perfect. done, Lisa. Well done. Perfect. Thank you for listening to the words we use. Own your voice and make your words matter. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review.